Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 196 of the iFreak Show. Today in our show, we have Andrew Madsen. Hello from Salt Lake City. Guy Rambo. Hello from Brazil. And we have a guest today, Martin Greider, who's been on the show before. But Martin, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. I hail from Minneapolis, Minnesota, and uh, I'm a, primarily an iOS freelancer, although last year's freelancing was probably... 90% Unity development, Unity 3D. I don't know if Very, you want more. <laughs> more than that. You could, you could go more. Um, we, we had planned to talk Unity, so that, that goes just great with that. So, Yeah, I'm happy Perfect. to talk about myself for hours. Uh, so, Well, if you want to just go, we can just take, you know, take a break, and we'll come back in 45 minutes and get to the picks. <laughs> if you're cool with that. Are you looking to expand your skills in mobile development? Have an idea for the next Angry Birds app? Then you need to check out iOS Remote Conf, produced by the same team that brings you your favorite devchat.tv podcasts like Ruby Rogues and iFreaks. Join us for two days of jam-packed fun and learning streamed to you live May 17th and 18th. Go check it out at iosremoteconf.com. If you're cool with that, I don't well, you come back from you come from an iOS background. So you, last time we t- talked with you, you did a lot of games, and you were a proponent of UIView games. You did a lot of work like that, um, and not getting into real 2D, 3D frameworks. Um, but when we caught up last time, you told me you were doing some work with Unity. Can you tell us a little bit about a little bit about that? Yeah. So. Um, yeah, that that was my big limitation was that most of the time I was working in UI kit and just doing like very simple 2D games. Um, and I love 2D games. There's nothing wrong with that at all. But, uh, you know, anyone who's been paying attention to sort of what's new and what's the latest, what's the new thing that's going to be, uh, you know, cool to work on um, knows that VR is in that short list. And so really, uh, it's probably about a year ago, maybe a little bit more than a year ago. Um, a couple months more than a year ago, I started to focus on 3D stuff. Um, and I was familiar with a bunch of different game frameworks, and I decided to kind of try them out. So the main two that I spent any time trying out were Unity and then Unreal. Um, both are free to try. They're um, you know big game development environments. They're both a library and then also an IDE. Uh, although... Technically, you don't edit code in either of them. Um, it's an ID for the kind of game objecty stuff. So a bit like Flash if you've ever used that. But anyway, uh, Unity won out. I didn't really like Unreal as much as I wanted to. I think Unreal games tend to look more realistic. They're they're higher quality, but uh, underneath it's C plus plus, and then they don't really. Like, they don't expect you to work in C++ very much, actually. They expect you to work in what they call blueprints, which is essentially like a visual programming language like Scratch or, um, I don't know, like any number of other visual programming languages. So I, I didn't really love, I don't, I don't like that idea. I, I'm a coder for sure. Uh, I like text editing. And uh, so it, Unity kind of won out by default. And I made a couple of games. I had previously used Unity for some game jams. Uh, and I did some more of that, basically, just doing some game jams on my own. Um, I spent about three months just doing nothing but learning Unity. And 
then I needed some work and <laughs> I found some some cool projects that just happened to use those new skills. Um, I ended up working on a 360 video application uh, for a local company called Visual, um, Visual Inc. And they, they ended up kind of white labeling that essentially. So that was, uh, um, we resold that. So the, the first one, the first client for that was uh, Rhapsody Music or known outside of the US as Napster. And, and then, like, while actually during the year, during 2016, um, they ended up uh, rename, rebranding back to Napster in the U.S. So <laughs> they had changed their name to Rhapsody Music um, after, you know, kind of that famous, uh, you know, lawsuit and all that stuff. Um, and then, so now they're, they're back to being Napster. Uh, all right, 2003 is back. Fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> I don't really know much about Napster as a service, but they were pretty good, pretty okay client. Um, and then we also basically like rebranded that same application, just a 360 video player um, for the Star Tribune and a couple other clients uh, that are probably not as exciting. And then there was, uh, let's see, after that, I did. Um, another kind of Unity, uh, and th and that that was uh, also I should say that was an iOS project. So that was a a project that we targeted Google Cardboard, which is the um, you know the kind of the VR technology, and that's a mobile. So it's like iOS Android uh, technology, and then um, Google Cardboard. What is that? Yeah. Okay. Uh, let's talk about Google Cardboard. Um, <laughs> essentially. You've probably seen them. They're like little cardboard headsets that you hold up to your face. Um, the HMD, they're called, like the, the head-mounted display, except that I guess Google Cardboard is often not really mounted. You're just holding it up to your face. Um, and there, there are actually two lenses inside there. And then you put your phone in. So it, uh, it supports pretty much any kind of phone with a, uh, with a gyroscope. So essentially the... The Google Cardboard API, which you include, you can get from Google and uh, include in your Unity project, that does the handling of like what direction you're facing. So essentially, you're holding the headset up and you're looking at your phone screen. But because there's these lenses, um, it'll sp split the the view, and you're looking at one side or the other. And that way, they can create a stereoscopic image. So you know, it's either a 3D image. Or in the case of the 360 video, actually, it's not even 3D. It's it's just um, using the the ability to like look around. So it's really using the gyroscope. Um, but if you look at it in 3D, like through the headset, uh, and it, it does support non uh, 3D, so you can just hold up your phone and look around, and it's kind of like a little window into the video. Um, anyway, if you're looking at it through the headset, it does seem more 3D. Uh, even though it's not actually 3D at all. Um, let's see. What else about Google Cardboard? Um, the New York Times famously gave away, I think, 100,000 of them to their subscribers. So they, were instantly, they instantly like doubled or tripled the number of Google Cardboard out in the wild. Um, however, like Target sells them. You can, you can buy a Google Cardboard at Target. You probably wouldn't know that you're buying one because it's the new... Um, uh, view, Viewmaster. I don't know. You remember those old like red uh, 
you know, you hold them up and then you would see a stereoscopic image and then you would click the little trigger and then you would see another one. Um, so that was, so Viewmaster has now released like a, you know, a modern incarnation and it uses your phone. So it's the same deal. Like it's, it's actually a Google Cardboard viewer, but it's, I, I refer to it as the Cadillac of Google Cardboard because it includes, it has the same like kind of trigger on the side that the old Viewmasters had. And um, for, for Google Cardboard in general, um, there's just one input. And the, the very first incarnation that Google made um, actually had a magnet that was the input. And it, like, it, it had a similar like kind of a trigger on the side, like where you held it. And it used the, uh, you know, the phone's um, compass. So the, the compass is essentially like a magnet. And so they, when they had that magnet on there, like it would just detect it's like, you know, the compass moving. Um, I think that the compass was a little too, uh, like, there was limiting. Like, there aren't as many phones that have compasses. Probably detecting the input depended on where the compass is located actually physically in the phone. Um, anyway, they ended up um, standardizing more on just, like, a tap input. So you can tap anywhere on a Google Cardboard screen, and it is essentially, like, that original trigger. Well, so Google, uh, so the uh, Viewmaster View Google Cardboard has a man, like a physical trigger button again. But what they do is really clever. It actually just uh, has a little um, capacitive nub that it touches the screen with. <laughs> so, like when you pull the trigger, it like pushes the nub out and touches the screen. And that's really your only input, like that and the direction you're facing. So most cardboard apps tend to have a reticle. So like it, you kind of see where you're pointing with your head, and then you can select things with by tapping the screen. I'm also working on a Google Cardboard game, um, and have been basically since around that same time uh, when I started working with the Cardboard API for Visual. Um, I also decided, okay, well I should make a simple game for this, and uh, simple is not that you know that never works out. So it's a it's it's very close to being ready to release. I'm working on the cross-platform leaderboards right now. But that game is basically like a kind of a collapse, like a block-breaking game, uh, but in VR. So it's kind of happening all around you. And, and you, you, have, you have four walls of the puzzle, and you're kind of inside them. So uh, it's called Puzzle Prison. <laughs> Coming soon to an app store near That's you. That's right, any minute. <laughs> Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so the the limitation, the big limitation of Google Cardboard, is that um, it, it's not locationally aware. Like, it has no sense of what position you're in. Only the rotation of the phone. So, for instance, if you're in a 3D environment or you're looking at a 3D environment, and there's a corner in front of you, like you want to look around the corner, and you lean forward instinctively to look around the corner. Uh, it won't know that you're leaning forward. You haven't moved in space at all. And that is what sort of modern uh, VR headsets like the Oculus and the Vive solve and why they are far superior to mobile VR at the moment. Okay, so if you want to strafe around a corner, it's not going to happen. Yep, you just can't. You, you can, uh, if you have a controller, you could potentially be moving with the controller. But that makes a lot of people feel sick, so... Uh, it's pro- it's problematic. I'm guessing if you're actually moving physically with a VR headset, that might be a problem. 
actually it's the it's the opposite it's when you're not moving but the game is moving right so like your virtual environment is moving but you're not moving that makes you feel queasy and i guess the alt- the opposite is probably also true if you if you were moving but the vr environment is holding still like basically anytime it doesn't match up with what your inner ear is feeling that's where you get queasiness um oh. That makes sense. I was thinking about the case where you just trip over stuff because you can't see it. <laughs> yeah. Well, so the the Vive is my favorite VR platform right now, and that is fully, truly room scale. Um, you essentially set up what are called lighthouses in the corner of your room. Um, so like in the opposite corners of a square environment, you set up these little boxes, uh, and they shoot lasers into the room. And then the headset and the controllers, it comes with these two controllers, will detect the lasers at a like really super fast precision. Um, so they're doing triangulation. And essentially, uh, you know, can you detect movement in that space to the millimeter? I mean, it's like really, really precise. And so, uh, you know, you want to clear that space. <laughs> you want to make sure all the toys are picked up. But then it's really cool. Uh, because essentially you can, you can lean forward or you can walk forward, like, you know, however big your space is. Uh, and look around corners and move through a virtual environment. So I, I've tried the the Vive. It's actually the only one of the you know current crop of of VR um, that I've tried. But the the tracking your position in the room is really cool, and it's certainly more immersive than I've I've got a Oculus DK one, so that's sort of my other experience, and I've played with Google Cardboard as well. But just having that room tracking is definitely a a, a big deal. Um, I do. I do remember that when I was playing. Maybe it's just. It depends on the the game or whatever. But if I got close to the edges of the detection area, it would show me a a wall somehow virtually, so that uh, you don't hit into stuff. As long as you've got the the space that is in the detection area cleared. Yep. So you when you set up that environment, um, like basically when you first set up your Vive, um, and you tell it like, oh, hey this is the space that I can walk through. You kind of just trace it with the controller and then um, it'll automatically bring up those, uh, how they, there's a word for it, but I'm, I'm spacing the word, but it brings up those, uh, like it, by default, it looks like kind of a grid that sort of, uh, you know, it's like truly, well, I don't know, like something out of 80s VR. <laughs> Yeah, like a wireframe wall, basically, if, if I remember right. Yep, yeah. Um, and, yeah, essentially marking your boundary. So that's like letting you know, hey, you're getting close to the edge of your space. Uh, you know, you might not want to push your controller out here because you're going to hit your bookshelf. True story. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah there, I, I was... So then at the, um, later in the year, I did make a Vive. I got to make one Vive game. Um, and it was for one of the sponsors of the Minnesota Wild. So the Minnesota Wild is our local hockey team, like the NHL hockey team. And uh, so people could, I think, I'm not even sure if the hockey season is still going on. But if you went to a Wild game. Let me interject. Uh, it is going on, and the Wild are in first place in the West. Whoa. Carry on. Wow. Congrats. You're doing good. It's I'll, all because of your app, I think. That's right. It's because people can go and actually pretend to be a goalie, like in the lobby before the games that's why <laughs> um yeah no so i i made that game um it's basically just a goalie simulator and they ended up uh 
Well, we ended up strapping the controller to uh, uh, the Vive controller to a hockey stick. So you don't have to have the controllers. You don't have to know how to use the controllers. You basically just put on the headset and hold a hockey stick and block shots in on goal. And uh, it's like a, I think a minute or so experience. And there, for David Dub, I've heard wild goalie David Dubnik has been using the. That's the secret to all the success. So. <laughs> he played it on Fox TV or on Fox News, rather. Oh, how do you do? <laughs> um, well, he beat the. Uh, I'm I'm forgetting the name of the uh, the owner of the Wild. So the, so he played it first, and then uh, the goalie played it, and he had a much higher score. So, <laughs> and he also praised the realisticness of the sh- like kind of the shots bouncing off and stuff, uh, which was pretty cool. I didn't really program that myself. That's really all Unity's built-in physics engine. But, you know, I'll take it. <laughs> Very cool. So, I mean, using Unity for iOS, uh, for the Vive, I mean, it, it's cross-platforms. It goes on a lot of different... That's right. Yeah, you can publish from Unity to the web, uh, you know, HTML... Uh, what is it, like... Uh, it's not HTML5. That's what I wanted to say, but it's it's like uh, web web GL. Web GL, yes. Um, so it's basically like a GL view inside your browser, um, and then yeah, it publishes out to Android, iOS. Uh, you know, m- a number of Android-like TVs, <laughs> Apple TV, um, I'll, pretty much all the game consoles as well. I'm kind of excited. Uh, I signed up recently for a Nintendo developer account. And I'm really excited about the Switch, which is coming out in like a week and a half. And uh, I might, I might try and make a game for that. Cool. That's a lot of different. That's a lot of platforms. So, what? How do you get started? Like, what? What is the process like? You know, most of our audience are iOS developers. How? How does that work? If you're developing for cardboard or just an iOS app? Yeah. I mean, so Google Cardboard. Um, if you Google for it. <laughs> You'll find their API. You'll find like getting started steps, and they have native steps too. Like they have a native API um, for iOS and Android, and then um, they also have this Unity plugin. And if you, you know, follow their steps, it's kind of ridiculously easy. Um, you'll want to download Unity, which is probably the longest part because it's a you know like seven gig install or something like that, um, and then. Uh, you know, getting used to Unity and where things are and that whole thing is a, you know, that's what took me three months, you know. I mean, and I'd already kind of been familiar with it. Uh, so it's a that's a whole process. But I think you can get started pretty easily, like watching some tutorials. Uh, I will warn that, like, Unity has been around now for about 10 years, and each version has just changed pretty radically what capabilities it has and where features are and different you know um different stuff so it's really easy to find stuff or answers to questions that you might have um that are no longer relevant (laughs) like because there's all this cruft of like older versions and um you know they're not super good about being backward compatible so a lot of the you know a lot of the new versions break old versions for instance, even just so a, Swift developers will be right at home. Right, yeah, yeah. If you if you dove into Swift, you'll you'll yeah, it'll feel normal. Um, yeah, like the five. So the latest version is five five, 
and you can't open a scene that's been opened in 5.5 in 5.4. Like, it just <laughs> breaks. <laughs> and that's, a, that's one thing that coming from sort of iOS native, I was, I was surprised by. Um, the, Apple does a surprisingly good job of keeping not necessarily all the old stuff around, but like a few versions back at least, you know, like you can, you can, uh, open a project from, oh, iOS eight or seven and generally run it, you know, more or less. So we get all the pain of react native and, uh, Cordova too. So we got them all covered. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah, I was always like really um, pretty adamant about sticking with native development, and uh, like I was also pretty um, not down on Swift, but just not excited to jump onto it. Like you know, feeling like Objective C is not going to go anywhere, and and now I'm like off on this totally different world. (laughs) I will say C sharp. So Unity development, um, you're writing your scripts in C sharp, and they are C sharp is very easy to use. It's like a a language that just uh, I don't know if it. I mean, I guess it feels a lot like Java, but I'd never really done Java development. But it just felt like things kind of just worked. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I think you can call. I have a question just, about that. Um, you, you said you write sure. your scripts in C sharp. Can you talk a little bit about what you mean by scripts? Yeah. So. You can write kind of like just, you know, default classes like C-sharp classes or whatever if you want. But um, you won't be able to necessarily use them very well in Unity without subclassing some very specific, some Unity-specific objects. So uh, most games in Unity are written only subclassing what they call um, uh, mono-behavior. And mono behavior is essentially just a Unity class, and it does some things. Uh, in particular, it has uh, so Unity is a component architecture, so it's an entity component system uh, architecture. And so essentially, you have game objects, and there's a hierarchy in Unity of your game objects, and then each object can have any number of components attached to it. And by default, they all have uh, a transform component, which just says where is it in 3D space. And if it's a 2D object, it might have a rect transform, which is basically like, where is this rectangle in 3D space? And um, and then it just goes from there. So if you have an image, maybe it'll have a sprite component on it. Or, you know, you could uh, have a, uh, a 3D mesh, and it would have this 3D mesh component. Um, essentially, like, Unity has all these components built in. But you can make your own components by writing scripts. And so you essentially extend the mono behavior object and then um, you can write your script that does whatever you want. And you can reference the other components, obviously, from your script. So you'd, you know, maybe you'll, um, well, you know, everything basically is a script. I mean, you can do whatever you want in them. So uh, it's, ki- it's kind of like storyboards. You have your standard objects and you can create your own by subclassing? Yes, yeah. So having, um, yeah, so essentially the Unity, you know, development, like, environment, the the Unity application, they call it the editor, uh, essentially is like editing storyboard. 
Like you're you're visually creating a thing, and then um, you know, just like in iOS, you can do it all in code if you want. Like instead, um, but it's pretty much easier to kind of go with the flow of like uh, actually doing most of the stuff in the editor, and then just using scripts when you you know kind of need to or or for little behavioral things. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, they. I I don't um, I don't dislike uh, how it works. Actually, I think it's pretty cool. I did a, a little. I, did, I didn't actually work on a Unity project other than getting it. Um, it was a Unity project for iOS that I set up to build on our Jenkins server. Well, it was Unity a cross-platform Unity project, and I set up the iOS build on our Jenkins server. And it, I seem to recall actually some of the build stuff is you, you write in C sharp too, like build settings. Hey there, this is Charles Maxwood, and I just wanted to talk to you really briefly about Freelance Remote Conf. I'm putting on a conference for people who want to go freelance or who are freelance, and bringing in some of the experts from the Freelancer Show to talk to you about how to find clients, how to collect money, how to build your business, how to specialize, and much, much more. So if you're thinking about going freelance or you're already freelance and want to hear from the experts on how to go, become, or grow your freelancing business, then by all means, come check us out at FreelanceRemoteConf.com. Sure. Yeah. I mean, you can also extend the editor. So you can add editor functionality with C Sharp. Um, and you can, um, there's a couple other like base classes, basically, like edit- editor extensions are one. And then there's some for just like kind of raw data storage. Like if you really want to um, create some just data objects, you can do that as well. Interesting. The, yeah, I mean, I know you can you can also write um, sort of native plugins, right? So, uh, for instance, the Google Cardboard plugin has a native iOS portion and a native Android portion, and they're basically getting at you know uh, phone specific functionality in those editors, and then sending or I'm sorry, in those plugins, and then sending that back to Unity. Um, Via this like plugin component kind of architecture, and so yeah, I'm I'm working on writing one of those right now for iOS, where I'm talking to uh, like a cadence sensor, like a bicycle, um, you know, how many times has the bicycle pedal gone around sensor, and I have an access to like the native um, framework for that, and like how that works on in a native iOS app. And now I'm like writing the plugin so that we can get that data from Unity for a project I'm working on where essentially you're biking around a, a city. <laughs> so using an exercise bike. So it's a virtual city. So if you want to access the native iOS stuff, you basically have to make your plugins for like, let, let's say I have a game and I want the user's location, for instance. How would I do that? Yeah, so I think there, I'm, I'm not 100% sure, but um, I think there might, that might already be something that's built into Unity. Uh, but if, the, if they didn't have it built in, you would essentially write a class in Objective-C or probably in Swift, um, uh, and then, you, you know, to get the data that you wanted. And then you would have to write a wrapper around that uh, and I think it has to be a C 
API. So you're basically writing some C, you know, functions um, that get the data or or take the data if you're talking to your plugin, um, and then essentially in your uh, C sharp uh, script, you can call those uh, through this native plugin um, framework, and that's kind of at a high level. Uh, I'm not super up on the specifics yet. That's that's actually on on the docket for maybe like Friday, maybe tomorrow, maybe Friday. <laughs> um, but yeah, that. So essentially, you can write some native um, functionality and then access it from your C sharp. Do that. I can't even remember what your question was exactly. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, I just did a talk at our local Cocoa Heads meetup on using Unity for iOS development. And oh, the, I remember the, there was another thing I was going to mention. Um, you, but if, so if you did want to get at, say, location data, um, I would not recommend that you write it yourself. Because one thing that is awesome about Unity is that it has what's called the asset store. And so you can access it from Unity, from the application itself. Um, but I actually probably would recommend you access it from the web. Uh, it's just a better interface, a better search. And then um, there's a button to like open it in Unity. So it so there's a it's basically a store, and it has in it all the things that you can build in Unity. I mean, so you could put up so for instance, 3D modelers. I mean, there's a I'll I'll go through a short list of things that it has, but like you know, 3D assets. So if you are starting a project and you want to you know you want to look around for oh I need some robot models for this project. Um, and I, I would I would prefer to buy them rather than make them myself. Um, the asset store has you covered. There's a ton of robot models, um, and there's a ton of stuff in general. Like you, almost anything you can imagine, you can search for and find. Um, for instance, the hockey game that that we worked on, like uh, there was one hockey stadium in the asset store, and it was a couple hundred bucks, so not cheap, a fairly expensive asset as assets go. Um, but like I thought, you know. For my time, that's really worth it just to have something to start from. I thought we'd actually throw the whole thing away, and you know we'd kind of use it as placeholder art until we um, you know got farther down the road. And it worked so well, we ended up keeping most of it. We you know we ended up customizing it quite a bit, but essentially that was the hockey stadium that we used was that asset that I bought initially, just as placeholder art. Um, okay, so then you can also buy like ex editor extensions, like I mentioned, that do all kinds of crazy different stuff. Um, I had a list of all the things that you can buy that I'm gonna I'm gonna look for because it was pretty good. Um, somewhere in here. So I held, so <laughs> I'm I I should have familiar, familiarized myself with this talk before talking to you guys, but. Um, there's a bunch of stuff in here that we could go through if you wanted. Like, uh, I I basically talk about like why you might want to use Unity and why you might not want to use Unity. Um, so I mentioned the ready-to-use 3D assets, the editor extensions, but there are also like a bunch of complete game examples. Um, so you can go into the asset store and say you want to build like a um, a game with a a 2D you know a 2D jumping platforming game like Mario. Um, I can guarantee you there are five or six different complete games that you can buy from the asset store and download and see how they made it. Um, you know, and maybe you just swap out some assets and publish it for yourself. <laughs> but some of them have permissive licenses like that and some don't. 
I just saw the other day there was a puzzle game that I, you know, it was like I, I'm a big puzzle game fan, and it was the one I hadn't seen, and it was the complete game. And part of what they were advertising in the asset store was that um, you could reskin it at the push of a button. So you you tell it some colors and then press the button, and it would uh, basically create a totally unique looking game for you just by pressing the button so that you could then go publish it yourself and that kind of thing is just uh, a little disturbing but it's the kind of thing you can find um and then uh just basic functionality so like if you wanted to get at the uh you know the location data i can guarantee you there are a bunch of assets that do just that for you um and give you an easy api for it um, there's also all kinds of, you know, kind of pretty much anything you can imagine, like, you know, notifications, in-app purchases, like ad networks, um, you know, everybody's got their own plugin. Um, for the 360 video player that we worked on, we used, we ended up using an asset store plugin to do the, the video playback, uh, because it, Unity at the time didn't have that built in. That wasn't like a native, uh, or a, that wasn't functionality that unity had so you had to basically write a native plugin to play just to play the video um and this one already existed so we just used that one um are there open source components as well or there are yeah so yeah for sure um and some are in the asset store like uh for vive development there's one called vrtk that i'm a big fan of um that just adds a bunch of kind of uh, interactions that you would expect in VR, so you can it, it lets you like mark objects as being able to pick them up um, and attaches them to the controller in the correct way. Uh, it it also has a ton of different like kind of built in like here's a box that you open the lid. You know, it's got like a hinge you know in the right place, and you can just grab the lid and open it. Um, and there's drawers like kind of drawers that you can slide out that you can't like. Put your, so one of the problems with VR games is that you can often put your head like through things, right? Because there's no there's no impediment to you actually putting your head into the space where that thing is. Um, but they have like an example uh, scene where you you know that the drawer what's in the drawer is hidden until you actually open the drawer. Um, which of course, I mean, all this stuff you could write yourself, but you're you know this is like helping out. Um, but VRTK is an open source project. So the version in the App Store probably lags behind by a few tiny point releases. Um, so you can go to GitHub and get the latest. Uh, the Google Cardboard plugin is another open source project. Um, but I, and I, that one I don't think is in the Asset Store. So some, you know, there's there's both. Basically, there's a ton of open source stuff around Unity, and that. Uh, brings back my earlier point about like the different versions of unity um there are definitely projects out there that were for unity 3 you know that you you don't want to go to those unity 4 most of them will probably still work with unity 5 um but it's the backward compatibility that really doesn't work so you couldn't open stuff for 5 and 3 or 4 so if you get one of these plugins now you mentioned you could adapt it so you must have access to the source. So in a sense, the plugins you pay for are still open source. Is that correct? Uh, some of it, it depends on the license. So some of them do say, you know, like, feel free to modify. Um, I just downloaded one yesterday that uh, 
purports to do that leaderboard stuff that I was talking about um, cross-platform. And I had to actually, like, you know, with a checkbox, sign a license agreement <laughs> to use it. And I was like, whoa. And I, you know, kind of specifically said, like, you know, you're not supposed to modify it or, you know, there's a bunch of stuff in there about it. And there's a big, you know, terms of use, post, you know, like a thing. And so, yeah, I think it depends on the license. And I'm not sure how the asset store handles whether they're giving you like different options for licensing, but essentially you do have the source. I mean, um, with some exceptions, I mean, so they, so for instance, this, uh, framework that I'm using for the cadence sensor, that's a compiled framework. Um, I could potentially, I mean, I'm not, I, I don't think it would be light legal, but I could like put that up in the asset store with the compiled framework. Right. So, um, in that way, that source would be closed still, but I would the wrapper that I write would still be open. Does that make sense? Okay, so you could submit a library that's already compiled. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, you can basically submit kind of anything in a package. Essentially, Unity has a um, sort of its own package system, um, and you I don't know what the format is at all, but it's very easy to take uh, your project that you've made in Unity and turn it into a package that you can then ask, import into another Unity project or potentially upload to the asset store and sell for money. Um, but those Unity packages, once you import them into your project, become whatever files they were before. So whether they're 3D models or you know, 2D textures or scripts or whatever. Very cool. Yeah, it's it's cool to see a a marketplace for that type of thing. You don't you don't see very useful marketplaces around code and software, other than yeah. like the massive app stores. You know. Agreed. Yeah, it's it's a uh, it is definitely one of the biggest advantages of using Unity is this that like there's so much ready made stuff already out there. Um, it's very easy to get started. Um, they, it's probably worth mentioning that they have like a whole bunch of stuff. They have a learn. Um, menu item on the Unity 3D site, and it includes like a ton of different. You know, they have tutorials and documentation, and um, I would say their documentation is not necessarily up to Apple's standards, but it's still pretty good. Um, I think there's a lot more of. Um, I mean, it it does cover all the frameworks and stuff like that. Uh, it doesn't go in as much to why. And I, I do think that's one of the things that's an, a little bit annoying about Unity is that there are a ton of different ways to do things in Unity. For instance, input management is this huge topic, and they're, you know, like, are you listening for keyboard input? Are you looking for mouse clicks or tap screen? Um, you know, there's, it really supports all the breadth of possible input. And the way it does that is in like 70 different ways. <laughs> so um, there, it can be hard to know which way is the right way for the thing that I'm trying to develop. And if you go, you know, looking on forums or, uh, you know, like, you know, if you're just looking around for how do you detect tap input, you might just stumble onto one way and not realize that there are like these three other ways to do it. So what other challenges did you run into coming as an iOS developer running Unity games? That's a good question. Um, 
I think that the probably the biggest hurdle for iOS development in Unity is that the the debug cycle on device is ridiculously long um, because you are essentially publishing out your Unity project. So Unity, I should say, Unity has a play button, and you essentially play whatever it is that you're creating. Um, you know, a game or you know whatever it is, you can see it in the editor, uh, and so that's essentially like a simulator. Um, and it supports different resolutions, and it can simulate quite a bit of the actual hardware that you're developing for. Um, but if you're relying on like a native plugin, or you wrote a native plugin especially, it probably doesn't support the editor, and so you're really going to have to do that device testing. Well, you, you have to publish out from Unity, which is maybe you know anywhere from 10 seconds to a minute or two, or yeah, I guess for a bigger project, it could be much longer. Um, and then especially if you've got a huge number of 3D assets. Uh, that published stuff can take quite a while. And then um, what that spits out is actually like an Xcode project. Um, and a really large one, <laughs> for some reason, is like a gigabyte project empty. Um, and then you, know, then you have the compile cycle from Xcode to put it onto the device. So it's, you know, that alone is super annoying, if you're, especially when you're at that final part of the project where you're really doing a lot of device testing and you've got a you know minute and a half turnaround to like see the change that you just made on your device that can be painful i can imagine that you, know, you have your one little animation that's not quite right and you're just tweaking the values and it's not working and it takes forever yeah hey, i was actually going to ask about that because when i set up the build i talked about earlier on jenkins it was an insanely slow build of course i was doing full clean build every time but i kind of wonder yep. what the situation was like in actual development yeah and were you just doing the um the xcode build in jenkins no i was actually... i was generating the the xcode project and doing the xcode build but i seem to recall both parts of that were pretty slow yep yeah i that's a pretty cool thing another thing that unity has uh they have a bunch of web services and one of them is called cloud build and you can actually set it up to build your project every time you push to your Git repository. Um, and that's kind of neat. Um, I mean, it's, it's neat in, in principle. But in, uh, like, especially for if you're doing a cross-platform thing, like you can really only push out a build for one platform at a time. Like When you go into the Unity build screen, um, you actually have to like, switch platforms which can which triggers a re-import of all your assets. So if you got a asset-heavy project, it it actually can take a while to switch platforms. So if you're wanting to test both iOS and Android, um, it's super annoying to do both. <laughs> and uh, um, so anyway, so I tend to set up the cloud build to build the Android version, and then it literally just sends you an email when it's ready, and you can go on your device and download the, the build fr right from the email, which is pretty amazing. And then I never have to switch the local project to, uh, to um, you know, from iOS to Android. So that part is just handled up in the cloud. I have used Jenkins once or twice. Um, and uh, it's, it's basically like that. <laughs> you know, you're you're running that stuff on the server. Yeah, well, Jenkins is Jenkins. It's the kind of thing where if you get away with not having to deal with it yourself, you probably should. But 
Oh, absolutely. <laughs> so let's say I have a, a, an idea for a game and I want to release it on iOS and Android. How hard is it to actually make the game for both platforms with Unity? Do I have to ro worry too much about the differences between the platforms? Well, it's really going to come down to the game itself, like how, like what differences there are um, between the platforms, like and how much of the native functionality functionality you want to get at. So, for instance, I pretty much don't release a game anymore without some kind of leaderboard or sort of social aspect to it, and um, that's something that's like very platform specific. So that's what I'm working on currently is that like, you know, the, how, do, how do I have a, like a leaderboard system in my game that both uses Game Center, Apple's Game Center, and then Google Play APIs. And there are asset store plugins for that, <laughs> as you imagine, but it doesn't really like cut down on the complexity. In fact, it's, it's just as, you know, like it's still a really complex problem. Uh, and so I think what they handle, what, what having like an asset store plugin for that does is allows you to write to the one API, but then it's the Asset Store plugin API, not Apple's API or Google Play's API. Like you, you know, so there's weird trade-offs and stuff there. Um, but if you're just talking about like writing the game itself, like getting a game to function, um, it's surprisingly easy. It's really, really easy. Um, essentially, like I said, you when you're publishing the game um, or when you're ready to like test a build. You have to specify like what platform you're building it for, but um, you know, it, I think that you know there are considerations. So, for instance, like what input you're going to use, and there are types of input that don't work. I mean, obviously, like keyboard input only works on iOS if you've got an attached keyboard, um, and but like you know, touchscreen input is going to work on both Android and iOS without any changes between them, um, and the. There are, like I mentioned, a bunch of different ways to get at that touch data, like to, to react to gestures and touches and things like that. Um, but at least one of them is pretty much exactly like the old style, you know, touches began, touches continued, touches ended kind of a thing. And I've been really happy with how that works both on Android and iOS. Did you have any more like specific questions about it? Because um, I think it would really depend on what you were building. Oh, it's just for a simple game, so I think you answered it. Yeah. Yeah, it's really easy. Uh, and it is kind of ridiculously easy to get started with Unity. Like, you can build something and have it sort of working in a, in a matter of hours. Are you trying to figure out how to stay current with Ruby and Rails? I'm putting on a two-day online conference called Ruby Remote Conf. You can check it out at rubyremoteconf.com. Like I said, it's a two-day conference where you can come and listen to speakers and experts from all around the world talk to you about issues pertaining to Ruby and web development. We have an online Slack channel, a roundtable discussion on Zoom, and all of the talks are given over Google Hangouts, and all of the talks will be streamed to you live. Come check us out at rubyremoteconf.com. Well, very cool. Well, we're getting a little bit low on time, so we're going to get to the picks. Sure. Um, Andrew, what do you have for us? Uh, I've got two picks. My first pick is going to go along with a, a recurring theme lately. Um, 
with the stuff I've been doing with old computers. There's actually a fellow named Chris Osborne um, who I don't really know who he is that much, but he has a BBS setup that uh, he was running it on an Apple II GS. I think he's recently moved it to a slightly more modern machine than that, but not by much. Um, but it's 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 a real BBS, like the old uh, old BBSs back in the 80s and early 90s. Uh, you can dial in over dial-up. He's also got it set up for Telnet access, and he, he has some sort of web browser interface for it. Um, and uh, a bunch of people m mostly on there discussing old computing systems. I, I actually got my next cube connected to it yesterday via Telnet, not dial-up, and had some fun with that. So put a link to that in the show notes. Uh, his name's Foztex. His, his online screen name is Foztex, so... That's my first pick. My second pick is one that I've I've probably I have, I have one question, Andrew. Sure. Does he does it block you out if there's more than one person connected at a time? Um, I think he has multiple phone lines. I don't know how many phone lines his modem has hooked up to it. Uh, I I know you will get blocked. You'll get a busy signal if enough people are connected over dial-up. But the Telnet interface doesn't have much of a restriction, from what I can tell. At least I was able That's to connect fine yesterday. It's kind of cheating. That was the old BBS experience. Oh, busy yeah. signal, busy signal, <laughs> busy signal. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, you just dial in with a landline and you'll get it, right? I don't even have a landline at home, or else I would try dialing in with a modem. What software is it running? Uh, I can't remember. It's actually fairly modern BBS software that um, that uh, somebody has written. I because I, I think I saw a 2015 copyright date when I logged in yesterday, which is kind of funny that anybody's still <laughs> d developing that but eh, cool right so my second pick is dash uh i'm sure this has been picked multiple times before and and the developer was uh, in the news probably not for good reasons um fairly recently but he's actually released dash 4 uh today or yesterday and i i really love dash um it has replaced the xcode documentation viewer for me because Xcode's documentation viewer has, in my opinion, gotten pretty bad uh, since Xcode 3, which was the pinnacle. So I use Dash instead, and, and I, one of the cool features he's added in Dash 4 is DocSet Playgrounds, where you can actually click on a button in a in a piece of documentation and immediately get a playground with a snippet of code that's related to, to try it out. So that's my second pick. Those are my picks. Guy, what do you have for us? I have two picks I just saw today, a project called HTTPy. don't know if maybe it was picked before, but it's a really cool little HTTP client for the terminal, and it's a lot better than curl. It has JSON support, syntax highlighting, uh, lots of cool stuff, so that's a cool one, HTTPy. It's available on, on GitHub. And I also like to pick a little project project of mine, which is called Play Always. And it's a little Mac app to create playgrounds directly from your menu bar. So you get the little menu and you can make an iOS playground, a macOS playground, or a tvOS playground. So it's really handy. Excellent. So I, I'm going to have two picks. I'm going to add on to Andrew's talking about BBS. I watched a BBS documentary about six months ago. It's an older one, but I realized since then that, and I've picked it before on the show, but I've 
realized that it's a very generational thing that people even know what a BBS is. I asked a, a pretty sharp developer, you know, around age 30, like, do you even know what a BBS is? It's like, isn't that like the British broadcasting service or whatever? And like, <laughs> no, no, no. So this documentary that will explain like what, what a BBS is, the beginnings of it, you don't need to watch all of it. There's like eight parts. You don't need to watch every one, but it's interesting to hear how the old geeks had to communicate, you know, before the internets. Uh, second pick, I'm going to add on to Martin's game that he talked about. And this is, this is not a game that Martin developed, I don't think, but it was an interesting news story or a funny news story. There's a company that made a, a different game where you actually take shots at a goalie. And it's not virtual reality, but it's a video game. And they had it out for years in different markets and they put it in the mall of America in Minnesota. And they, they had this challenge out forever saying, if you can beat the goalie five times or whatever, you win a Harley Davidson. And the challenge has been around for, for years. No one's won it. It's been in arcades in Nebraska or different places. They put it in Minnesota and within the first day, two people won it and they shut down the, they just shut down the competition and there's an article about it. They find out who some of these people are, you know, they're not like NHL players. They're just like random dudes who played high school hockey and, just beat the game and won Harleys. So kind of a cool story. Martin, uh, you fixed for us. That's great. I hadn't heard of that. <laughs> um, well, man, now I'm, now I want to talk about BBSing, but uh, <laughs> I, I used to spend a lot of time on Citadel BBSs. I don't know if you're familiar, but that's uh, Citadel is completely open source uh, now. And I think it's still being developed. It's crazy. Like you can install it in a web page. Uh, and yeah, they were all, it was back in the day, all, all the VBSs I went to were Citadel. Um, anyway, my picks were going to be, uh, the first one was, uh, uh, essentially, uh, an email list you can sign up for called VR Digest. And, um, you know, VR is so new and so fast paced right now that stuff is just happening every week. And so every Wednesday, if you want, you can get VR Digest in your, inbox and it'll basically round up kind of like everything that's happened uh, may, I shouldn't say everything it's really just the big the big ticket items that have happened in the last week um, so for instance this week's uh, mentions that tilt brush came finally came out for oculus tilt brush having previously just been a vive uh, thing uh, tilt brush is Google's essentially like drawing application for the vive and now it's available for oculus um, it also talked about IMAX opening a VR arcade and um, another VR experience that's opening that's all custom hardware uh, in L.A. somewhere. Um, and then they list, like, I think five different things that are just, like, littler things that happened. Uh, Google put together some research showing you how it can recreate uh, occluded faces just from, like, some footage which is interesting. Um, yeah, so anyway, there's a bunch of different uh, links, basically. And I've found that that's, it's been really great. I, I, think, I think last time I was on the show, um, either I wanted to or I, or I did actually have as my pick um, iOS Dev Weekly, and I was a huge fan of that for a very long time. And now um, it seems to be mostly Swift, and I, I'm not as big a fan of it. But, but and also like I'm not doing as much strict iOS development, but but VR Digest is almost has kind of replaced that for me. 
And then my next pick, I'll just mention a couple of conferences I'm going to uh, this year. I've already, actually, next very next week is uh, the big game developers conference in San Francisco. Um, and uh, that's the conference to go to if you want to be, if you want to get into game development. It's, I think, uh, 200,000 people or something like that. They rent out the entire Moscone campus. So it's like all three areas of it. Um, and it's pretty cool. There's, I mean, you know, I, the first two days are kind of track sessions. So there's a mobile track. Um, I'm going to be doing the VR track this year. Um, in the past, I've done the indie track. Uh, you can sign up for an all access and do whatever you want. Um, but this year I went with the, the VR track. Um, but, uh, and then Wednesday through Friday, it's like there are so many more options. Like it's, it goes from being like a couple things that you would want to do at any given time to being, you know, five to 10 things you want to do at any given time. Uh, and then I also just bought my IO ticket. Or, uh, I don't know if you guys are familiar with the IO festival, but it's actually local to the Twin Cities, but it attracts people from all over the world. And it's, it's a creative coding conference. It's not specific to creative coding. There's also a lot of um, data visualization and essentially just like um, interesting visual technology conference. Uh, and it's, it's spelled E-Y-E-O-I-O festival. Those are my picks. Very cool. I've, I've been hearing about that festival or that conference for a number of years and it's hard to get tickets, but people really seem to like it. Yeah. I, in the past, I O has sold out in like 10 minutes. Uh, I think this year there were definitely still tickets the next day. Um, but I don't know how long that'll be true for, or if it is still true. <laughs> I guess we'll find out. Well, anyway, thanks, Martin, for coming on the show. We're glad to have you back again. We learned a lot about Unity and VR and getting the code working and all that stuff. So thanks for having everyone me. else, we'll see you all next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.